Let's turn this morning to Philippians chapter 4. Bates, I'm not kidding. Bates falsely told you last week that we're, I was always coming back to finish this one. So we're taking a rest from rest today. This is our last installment of Philippians. So optimist that I am, we thought we'd get through Philippians in eight weeks. Do you remember? I even handed out cards on the first Sunday. It was like, here are the eight topics we're going to deal with in Philippians. And as God has shown us and we've worked, walked through it, it's been so beautiful. And I think we've been, what, seven months? Seven months. So almost a, almost a topic per month, which has been great. But it's been so good just to take time to pause in a culture that just rushes, rushes, rushes everything. Just give me your best stuff. Give me your new stuff. And it's been beautiful for me personally just to stop in the book of, of Philippians and really get down. And it feels like God has, has brought so much to the surface in my own life and challenged me so deeply about practical godly living. That's really the take home from Philippians is how do we live? Not how do we think, but how do we live as believers? So this morning we're reading quite a big section and this is the last one we're going to be doing. So Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need and then perhaps one of the most famous of verses in the Bible even people who don't follow Christ will know this one verse 13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit I have received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I think it's a great name for a baby. Any, any pregnant, I think it's, it could be girl or guy as well, Epaphroditus, such a great name. Anyway, uh, I'm done, so that's why I can throw out those jokes now. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he has a, a little farewell, a few verses. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we turn to your word, I ask that you would still busy minds. As the rush of our lives and our marriages and our jobs and our studies and all of these other things want to steal every moment of our time. Lord, this morning we want to bring just half an hour, 40 minutes. We want to bring our minds before you, our hearts before you, and quiet them. Come and speak to us, Lord. Come and challenge us. Come and encourage us. You're an amazing Father, and we look to you as our source this morning. Amen. So I'm just going to do three Things I want to zoom out and then I'm going to zoom in, which is just two things, but I'm going to zoom in twice. So that's the third thing. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at the wider context of the book and just remind ourselves what's actually happening. Paul, if you remember, 
right back when we started seven weeks ago, (coughs) uh, a while back, Paul is actually writing to the Philippians saying, thank you. Epaphroditus has brought him a gift. Where's Paul? Do you remember where Paul is? He's in prison. That's where he's hanging out this time of life. And he finally gets to his reason and he says, thank you. Then he tells about Epaphroditus' journey, that Epaphroditus almost died while he's been with Paul, that he's coming back. And Paul is saying, thank you. So the big idea, actually, of this text and of Philippians is the idea of a gift or of receiving something or of a financial benefit to Paul, the apostle that has come from the Philippian church. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to zoom out quickly, and I'm just going to do one point on this, and I've called it Why We Give. Why we give, and I want to remind us because I think it's such a leaky topic. It's something we keep on forgetting. So I'll start off in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Do you see that little word, greatly? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. It's the opposite of what your kid does on Christmas morning when they open the present they were hoping they didn't get. It's like the sticker book instead of the Xbox. And they, and they don't rejoice greatly at all. It's just like, mm. Thanks, Dad, which is a good thing to do occasionally. It's from, that one's from Santa, right? But Paul says, I rejoice greatly, which shows us this gift was needed. It was a needed gift. He's so thankful. He's so thankful for this gift. It's gratefully received. But what I want you to note is that immediately, even though Paul needed this gift from the Philippians, he's in prison, he has lack, he has needs, immediately, however grateful he is, he wants to point out that his trust and his source is not the Philippians, that it's in God alone. So immediately he says, I'm so thankful, not that I am speaking of being in need. He wants to make it clear. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's the progression. Man, I'm rejoicing. I'm so grateful, but I'm just putting in a little sidebar here, Philippians. I want you to note that I'm not trying to twist your arm to send me anything else. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to let my gratitude be any of that. I'm trying to remind you that God is my source. I trust in Him and Him alone. All right? That's the first little sidebar, and it's quite interesting. And so then he, rather than guilt-tripping them or anything like that, then verse 14 has this little word. It says, or this little phrase, Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. So he's now returning to his thank you. So remember, he's trying to thank the Philippians. So thank you for what you've done. I'm so grateful. I'm busy rejoicing. Remember that God is my source. And then he returns to thanking them. It was so kind of you. The other churches didn't stand with me, but you guys have been with me the whole way through, even in Thessalonica and Macedonia. You've sent me help. And then verse 17, he sidebars again. So he's done it once, and now we see him do it again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It's fascinating to me how much care Paul takes around finances in this passage. It's fascinating to me that he, almost as if, almost as if he knows how jumbled up the human heart is when it comes to finances and how quickly we worry about the motives, right? It's like he's saying, I I just, I want you to understand, in case you are suspicious of my motives now, in case you are suspicious of my motives, I want you to know that I'm not seeking more gifts from you. I don't need your gifts. My source is God. 
I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And I want to achieve two things in this kind of zoom out mode this morning. I want to tell you two powerful giving truths. Two powerful giving principles or truths. And I want you never, ever, ever to forget them. What do you do to help you remember things? I I sometimes write it up next to my mirror or mostly in my office. I've got things up in my office. One of them on my door is what's important to me is not what's important to my kids. Every time I leave my office, I read that phrase. I got it from Rob Parsons. What's important to me is not what's important to my kids. They don't need your stress when you come home. They don't need this or they don't need that. So take, take some of these truths and write them somewhere that you can, or do something that will help you remember them because we leak this stuff. We are so um, willfully forgetful when it comes to finances and generosity and all these giving of gifts and these other things. So here's the two things I want you to learn. The first one from Scripture is this one. When we give to kingdom purposes, we have fruit that increases to our credit. When we give to kingdom purposes, we have fruit that increases. So I have a picture in my mind immediately when I read about fruit of a tree, because that's where I find most fruit grows. So I have a picture of a tree, and he says, Paul is saying, when you give, it increases the fruit on your tree. You have more fruit on your tree than you had before you gave. There's another way he's saying it. This is for all the accountants and the CAs of who we have quite a number in this church. It's, it's great. We have lots of teachers, lots of accountants. So he says to you, it increases to your credit. In other words, the credit column is going up. Have I got that right? The credit column, I've got two of them sitting right here. These are both CAs here. So your credit column is going Your balance sheet is looking more healthy after you give. Now, hang on. Thinking Christians. I, I, did, I, did I butcher that? Okay, I was doing great until I forget the balance sheet part. Your credit goes up. That's good. That's okay. So, thinking Christians, three weeks ago, I spoke out of Philippians on, on our mind and the thinking Christian, right? Thinking Christians, when we read a phrase like that, we need to stop and say, hold on. That does not make sense. That is not what they taught me in maths class. They did not teach me that when I give away things, I get things. What they taught me is that when I give away things, I don't have as much anymore. Right? When I had 10 apples and I gave five away, I now have less apples. I don't have more apples. But what Paul is saying in this text is not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So the Philippians have given away stuff to Paul, and he's saying that there's an increase of fruit. There's an increase to their credit. Now we've got to, we've got to stop and we've got to say, this doesn't make sense. And it only makes sense when we start to remember the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to usher into the world. Jesus came to usher in a completely upside down kingdom. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. So let's think about it. What does Jesus come and teach us? He says, you want to find your life? Are you looking everywhere for your life? Are you trying to find meaning, significance, purpose? Are you trying to find what to do with your career and your life? I want to to tell you how to find it. Lose it. Why don't you apply that to your housekeeping and see how it goes for you? It doesn't make sense. You want to find your life, you've got to lose it. It's an upside-down kingdom. Or what about this one? You want to become a leader? 
You want to, you want to climb the ladder until you're the leader of the, of the business or of the NGO that you work for or whatever it is that you work for? You want to become a leader? I'm going to become a servant. I want you to wash people's feet. Can you imagine? We read it and it's like we heard it from Sunday school days. So we're just so, so blasé around it. But can, can you imagine the disciples the first time they're hearing that? Everything around leadership they've ever seen, much like us, is about pushing and, and trying to climb over people to get up the leadership ladder. And then Jesus says, I want to teach you a new way. I want you to be servants. It's like, how's that going to work? And we live in this upside down kingdom. Think about, think about you guys this morning. You're living in an upside down kingdom. Your mom has been, your wife has gone to be with Jesus Christ. Or everything the world teaches us is, is, is sadness and sorrow and loss. But we come to this upside down kingdom and God says rejoice. We don't, we, don't, we don't have to grieve like the pagans who have no hope. We can rejoice. You're following me. And then if we're thinking even a little bit more, we've got to ask, well, how can this be? How can it be that when I give, I get more? When I, when I lose my stuff, my money, my effort, my whatever it is we're expending for the sake of the kingdom, when I give that, I gain. In my credit column, not my balance sheet. How does that, how does that work? Well, I think, I think it works. And this is the second thing I want to teach you this morning from Philippians. So the first one, what I've been dealing with, the second one is this. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, what Paul has realized is that the Philippians are not giving to him. They are giving to God. They're giving to Paul, but they're really giving to God. And it's only when we understand this when we understand that every piece of finance we give, every effort, every time, every act of service is as unto God. Let me remind you who God is. God is the one who owns everything. So I've got, I've got this, one of my joys is picking up our girls from, uh, from gym, my girl and about another five girls, and we drop them off in Dibuot and all over the place. So we do this lift club. And one of the things I have this conversation with them, and they're just delightful, 10 years old, and we have this conversation. So we're driving out along the R44, and I say to them, that's my mountain, pointing at Stellenbosch Mountain. And they all start giggling and say, what do you mean that's your mountain? I said, God gave me that mountain. No, he didn't, Dad. No, he didn't, Uncle Paul. And they're going, and I said, no, God gave me that mountain. I prayed and I asked him, can I look at that mountain every morning, Lord? And he said, yes, you can, it's yours. That's my mountain. And and then we're having this conversation and we're laughing and we're joking. And I said, well, who owns the mountain? Who owns it? I said, well, God owns it. So doesn't he have the right to give it to me? Doesn't he have the right to give it to me? If I own this shirt, I can give it to whoever I want to. God owns the mountain. Paul, I wake up, I look at it every morning. It's yours, You you can look at it. I can't sell it, <laughs> but I can look at it. It's mine. I can't remember why I told you that story, but it was a good story. <laughs> oh, it's God's. So the second truth is that when we give, we give to God, and God can never be outgiven. That's the only way this upside-down kingdom makes sense. It doesn't make sense in the mind. It makes sense only when we link it to the greatness of God. It only makes sense that when we give, we increase. When we give, we get more fruit. When we give away, our credit goes up. It only makes sense when we are giving to God himself, the owner of the universe. That's when it begins 
to make sense. All right, now I want to zoom in, and I'm going to zoom in on verse 11 to verse 13, if you're following in your Bibles this morning, and we're going to speak about contentment for the rest of our time together this morning. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us. What do you want to say? (laughs) The first one is this. Contentment is learned, not a gift given. Contentment is learned. I want you, as I read this, there's two two sets of repeating phrases. You'll see the exact same phrases, two different phrases in this text as we read it. Look for them and I'll ask you what they are afterwards. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who picked up the two phrases? Can I have them? Yes, go for it. Give me one. I have learned is the one phrase that's repeated. Yes. What's the other one? Yes, Matthew, I see you mouthing it. What is it? Give it to me. I know how to. Exactly. Those are the two repeat, repeat phrases. Now let's, let's think about these two phrases. I have learned. What does that mean? I have learned. This is Apostle Paul speaking about contentment and he says, I have learned and I know how to. In other words, I did not used to know how to. In other words, I didn't used to do this thing well. So if I had to use it in our, our kind of colloquial language, you'd see immediately that it speaks of process, that it speaks of practice. So if I had to say, I have learned how to play the piano, you would all immediately understand me. If I said, I have learned how to dis- discuss philosophical subjects in the light of the historical context, that was for you, Grace. Did I get that right? There we go. I had to learn that. I have learned how to love my wife and oh, what stories she could tell of me not doing it well. Anyone else? Amen in the house. I did not speak woman that well when I got married. It's been a serious, serious learning curve, and it's been the same for her. We have learned. I have learned how to read physical signs in my body that make me aware of my vulnerability to sin. This is a fantastic lesson to learn. I know from from 36 years of experience, almost 37, getting old, I, I know... That when I'm in a certain space emotionally, there's vulnerabilities to certain sins in my life. I literally sometimes when I'm tired get a twitch in my left eye. And I, I now know that that reminds me that I'm vulnerable to certain sins when my guard is down. I've learned that. I've practiced that. Then he says this other phrase, I know how to. This is just the other side of of the same coin, right? So the one side is, I have learned how to. I've been trying and I'm getting it. And the other side is like, who knows how to do this? Well, I do, I do. I know how to do it. So it's like the other side of having learned a whole bunch of stuff. Now, what is it that that the scripture says that Paul has had to learn? What is it that he can claim, I now know how to do this? After learning and learning and practice, I know how to, how to do this thing. What has he practiced and failed and learned some more and practiced and, and sinned and asked for forgiveness and got back up again until he can say, I know how to do this. What is he talking about? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any 
and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. And so I love that word, the secret. You know, it's like, there's a secret to it that's difficult. There's, there's a way, there's a, you know what I mean? Of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul has learned is that no matter what he's facing, he can remain content. And if you look back through the book of Philippians, you'll see so much under this word contentment. When you think of what contentment is, it's I, I'm satisfied. It's I'm, I'm at peace. Think about how much we've spoken about peace in this series. It speaks about joy, not, the, not fickle happiness. And I love being happy, don't get me wrong, but we've been speaking about this for weeks, months. Happiness is up, down, up, down, up, down. Circumstantial. What happens makes me happy or makes me sad. And that's fine. But we have another place that we can peg ourselves. And it's joy. That regardless of what's going on, we can find joy in the Holy Spirit, in God. he's, He's speaking about contentment. I no longer have to live under the crushing expectations that I place on myself or that others have placed on me. That's beautiful. The whole way through the book of Philippians, he's been talking about unity. Tell me, are you not content when you're unified with those around you? Isn't there a contentment that comes with sweet friendships and not fighting, not having angst? This for me is the single most important earthly characteristic of my emotional state. If my wife and I are on the page together, man, I can take all of you on. All of you, no matter how scary you are. When we are not on the page together, the Lord is really trying to speak today. Eh? <laughs> when we are not on the page together, man, you, you can blow me over almost with a, with a breath. You know, It's such a powerful thing, being unified, being together in friendship. Now let me ask you, why is, is Paul's wording of practicing and learning and I know how to, why is it so important for us today as believers? Why is it so important? I want to suggest, I believe it's because we are constantly swallowing one big fat lie that the devil is pushing across the table to us. And this is the lie, that if you just remain a Christian for long enough, If you just remain a Christian for long enough, you're going to be mature. We think that somehow through a process of Christian osmosis, that you know you sleep with your Bible less than a meter and a half away from your head. I know some people who listen to scripture while they fast asleep so that it kind of is going into their subconscious. We think that just through some process of Christian osmosis, you're going to wake up one day and find... Oh, Paul is mature, he's content, and I can't wait to spend as much time with Jesus today as I possibly can. I just love prayer, don't you? Don't you? And oh, the peace and the joy. It just floods my heart all day long. I mean, we think we're just going to, just going to, time, 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 time. Ta-da! If ever you feel like that, just think about marriage. Think about marriage and and your wife and your husband. It's a great example living right in front of you that just simply living together for longer does not make it better. 
You've got to work. You've got to practice. You've got to sweat. You've got to pour blood and tears. So now I'm, I'm the nagging guy that's, that's reminding us throughout this book of Philippians that it's just not the case. And the reason I'm going on about it is because I really believe it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly dangerous to us to believe this. If you believe, if you believe that we just have to have a period of time between here and here and that's going to be what maturity is and there's no practicing and there's no effort and there's no crying out before God, Lord, I've done it again. I've done it again. I don't want to ever do it, but I have. I've done it again. You know what happens? The, the inevitable, inevitable result is that we end up so full of guilt and shame. We end up so full of this stuff because of the inevitable sin in our lives. No matter how many times I've said, Lord, I, know, I don't want to ever do that again. I don't anymore pray I won't ever do that again because I know myself. You know yourself. Here's the crazy thing. With social media going crazy like it is, I heard someone about two weeks ago that said this little phrase, and I'll try and get it right, but it's just, it just struck me. They said, she said, the danger with social media is that you are comparing someone's external life with your internal reality, and you never match up, ever. Powerful. But this is what begins to happen. As we think that if we live with this, this lie that we're just going to somehow mature as time passes by, then we feel guilt and shame as we look at those around us and are constantly comparing ourselves to them and thinking, well, they seem to be get it right. Why am I the only one who's still struggling with this thing? Or maybe it leads over into confusion over our status in Christ. Am I not born again? Am I not made new? Am I not a new creation? Then why do I keep on sinning? Why does this stuff keep on going through me? When we don't believe that we need to practice, I think we start to be disappointed. I think it leads to disappointment. I think we get deeply discouraged. And I think eventually we become disillusioned. Some even walking away from the faith. Dev drew these brilliant drawings for us, which we're going to auction afterwards. <laughs> Three weeks ago, off the back of Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. Practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So this is what it looks like. There's salvation, there's a length of time, and you ask the question to a mature Christian, and this is just what I've been speaking about, but it's just so beautifully illustrated. I just have to show it again. Will you go to the next one for me, Dev? Is there a next one? Is that the only, <laughs> is that the only one you got for me? My third and last point this morning, I've called it straining, straining to see the whole picture. And there's going to be a little bit of a group exercise. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to a group around you, just shift your chairs around. We're going to spend three or four minutes, and I want you to write, write down or discuss as a group this one thing, what does Philippians 4.13 mean? Here's Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does it mean? Go for it, you've got three or four minutes. <laughs> Wonderful. Sorry to the setup guys who took like their chalk lines out and got the chairs so perfect this morning. So here's the question, what, is, what does Philippians 4.13 mean? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So who wrote, you don't have to put your hands up, it's not, a, it's not a test, but who wrote something like this? 
This verse means that no matter what trial, circumstance, or situation I am currently in, or even going into my future, I know that God can give me strength to go through whatever that tough situation is. I know that He can bring me out at the other end. Right? Someone wrote something, something along those lines. So maybe, maybe this verse is, is a, a verse about difficult circumstances and God's promise that He will help us, He will sustain us, He will go through us, through it with us. Or maybe you looked at the context, because that's what I was speaking about when I zoomed out and finances and all our CA wired people. And maybe you said, well, Paul seems to be talking about money or gifts or something around that. So I guess it means that when we are financially in trouble, anyone ever feel like that? When your month outlasts your budget. When we have to tighten our belts, we must, we must take heart that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He will see us through. He's faithful. He's proved faithful in the past. He will prove faithful again in the future. So maybe it's a financial promise. Those two are brilliant. I hope you didn't get the third one. Have you guys heard this used as like a motivational statement? You know, like especially famous sportsmen. You know, like like Ricky comes off the rugby field and he's like, I was out there and I was tired and battling. Yes, we were we were thirty six eighteen down. It was hard, I tell you. And and I remembered my mom. My mommy told me I can do all things through God. And so. I dug deep. God gave me strength. And we won. We won. And so old Chriki hoys it on TV. Amen to Jesus, you know, that he can do all things through Jesus because he won for the spring box or, or whatever. You know, and we hear it used as like a motivational thing. Now, if you got the first two, not the last one, what wonderful things to have grasped. What, what profound revelations that the comfort in times of trial the comfort in times of suffering that God will, God Himself will give us strength. What a Savior and a Defender and a Rock! I love, I love reading in the Psalms and looking at all the metaphors that that these these earthly men and women are trying to scratch about, trying to find ways to describe who God is, and they're using. English or Hebrew or Greek, whatever it is they're trying to use. But we're trying to find these words. But I love some of them, like the word shield. I think about shield. And I remember one, one night at a, in Somerset West at a prayer meeting, and I was, we were singing this song, God, you're my shield. And I just thought about the context of that, like in an old medieval battle where you go in and oaks are firing arrows, and they're firing, you know, fiery arrows, and they're throwing stones, and they're throwing spears. A shield is a pretty good thing to have, right? I'd be going everywhere trying to find myself a Roman shield. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. What assurance to know that those of us facing financial crisis and financial trouble, what an assurance to know that we have a Father who owns all of creation. But, but I believe that, that very often we read this text and we only have half the picture. We only get the half of it. We see it as a, like sort of, but not, not really completely because our instinct, and I've never heard it taught differently, scripturally, is, is that it makes us jump to, to being saved from hardship. Being saved from hardship. He will give us strength to get out of something, to, to push through something, to have strength to endure something. All of these words, endurance, strength, getting through, are the kind of ways that we look at the scripture. But I want to look at it again, and I want to ask you to read it with fresh eyes. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be 
brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now what's astounding about that scripture when you read it is if you look at it, there's, there's six different scenarios that Paul is painting and three of them are actually positive. Three of them are trial and difficulty as we would understand it and three of them are positive. So look at it. I know how to be brought low. This is the hand for the, for the low side. This is, I know how to be brought low, but I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance. Now tell me you were thinking wealth and easy circumstances or your imagination of easy. You weren't. You were thinking trial and difficulty in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. There's a secret to facing plenty and hunger. So we two all. Abundance and need. Three, three. I've only ever heard this scripture pastorally given as a comfort and an encouragement to those facing trouble. Not once have I ever heard someone turn to a rich man or woman and comfort them and encourage them with this verse that you can do all things because of him who gives you strength. Have you? Have you ever heard it used like that? It seems, you see, it seems absurd to us because in our culture, what we've done is that we've largely linked this idea of contentment with the idea of having. We've linked it with wealth. We've linked contentment with having more stuff. And so for us to think of wealth as a trial, it sounds like ridiculous. It's like hashtag white man problems. Right? I mean, it's like, it's like ridiculous. Having huge amounts of money, having, having a security or so-called security and investments or that, we, that we secured for our, for our earthly future. A trial that God needs to give us strength to cope with, to, to bear with. Maybe a, maybe a really helpful parallel along this is I, I keep seeing, especially younger people that really want to be celebrities. They really, like, you know, like the celebrity lifestyle or the culture or whatever it is. But it's like, it's completely in the, despite the fact that there's this mounting evidence everywhere. Almost every news article you read of how terribly discontent these people are. There's just strings of broken relationships between fathers and, and sons that are suing their fathers the whole time for trying to get the money and, and daughters and all this nonsense. And then there's like, strings of broken marriages and it's just one marriage to the next to the next and they look like happy puppets up there on the stage like doing their thing but we know that in the background there's just absolute devastation in the vast majority of their lives i mean how many more news articles do we need to read about someone who committed suicide they don't normally say suicide it's normally like to be investigated of a celebrity or you know and jim carrey i didn't actually pull up the quote but i remember it roughly he said, I wish everyone, the comedian Jim Carrey, ha-ha guy, I wish everyone would get rich and famous so that they could see that it's not everything they think it would be. He says something like that in a moment of sanity. Maybe for you it's, it's imagining what you would need in order to be content. That other house. Maybe you want to move from whatever area of Stellenbosch you're in to the other area. Of Stellenbosch, and that would bring you 
contentment or, or maybe it's the career the other guy has or the opportunity or the NGO opportunity or whatever it is or maybe it's that wife. If, I could, if my wife was like that, then I'd be content. Or maybe it's your husband or even your children. Or maybe one of the ones that are the most pertinent at the moment is your country. You know, if I lived in Australia, you know, if I went to this place or, or that place, Canada, I don't know who I'm talking about there. Sean told me a story the other day, or just an observation. He works in finance and works with a lot of pretty wealthy people. Um, And this is what he observed. He said to me, Paul, you know what the crazy thing is? Is that all of them have one great and terrible fear. They're not content. They're terrified they're going to lose it. They live terrified that they're going to lose it. So I I think that in this passage in Philippians, I think that even sitting here this morning, there's those of us who need to completely rethink this text. That that there's people who have plenty. There's people who abound in every earthly measure that we could put on them. And yet I think they just as desperately need to hear these words. You can do all things because of him who gives me strength. That's what Paul's saying. I have learned how to abound. I have learned the secret of having plenty. It's not easy. I want to tell you it's not easy. But I've learned the secret of having plenty. Plenty. Let's think about why that is. Well, here's a a few suggestions. Don't you know that to him who's given much, much will be required? Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much was given of him will be, much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's quite sobering. I think I'll rather stay poor. Thank you very much. Think about The layers of, I'll tell you a little bit of a personal journey. So I was in business for many years, and or like eight or nine years. And then when, when I started leading this congregation, I, I kept two businesses and sold the other ones. And I kept two and, and was trying to run it parallel with this. And then I realized that wasn't going to work so well. So I sold one of them and I just kept the one. The one that I thought, this is, this is my shot at wealth. That's the truth. If I'm really honest, that was like my last remaining shot at wealth. And one day on, in my lounge, and I was, I was on my face, and, and God was really talking to me and really dealing with me and some, some issues. And I just, in, in a moment of, of such clarity, it was almost, yeah, it was so clear. He, I felt him speaking to me, saying, Paul, the business that you're holding on to is your security in your back pocket. You've got it like a security blanket in your, in your back pocket. I want you to sell it. I want you to get rid of it. And I want, I want you to know that I am your source. I am your source. I alone am your source. And now in the last two, three years since that happened, do you know how increasingly grateful I have become for that moment? As, as I feel like God is showing me more and more, of, I'm vulnerable from the pulpit, so you guys know some of my struggles. You know some of the, some of the things I'm going through in the year and, and what God's been. I feel like this year God particularly has shown me so many things that are wrong in me, so many things I need to work on. Do you know how grateful I am? I'm not also trying to fight all my motives around having money. Do you know how hard it is to, to sort out all your, your heart stuff and, and have like, all these different demands that are placed on you. It's a huge responsibility. 
So I want to speak to those of you who have abundance, who have the earthly things, and I want to say to you, be encouraged. You can do all things through him who gives you strength. I want to ask you, have you learned the secret of contentment? Where is your source? I think that's one of the greatest temptations when you have wealth. Is your source your houses? Is it your investment account? What is it? What is it that is replacing God for you? That if I had to take that thing away, your whole world would wobble and shake. Have you learned the secret of this upside-down kingdom? Have you learned that when we give, we find more fruit on the tree? Have you learned that when we give, our credit column goes up? I want to close with Jesus because I love to close with Jesus. I think we should close almost everything with Jesus. And he displays this principle so beautifully in the Messiah poem, which we've been looking at all this time through Philippians. So turn to Philippians 2 and let's read verse 4. This is where we're going to close. I'll just be another two minutes. This is Paul encouraging the Philippians and he says, let each of you Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's the instruction. Now he's telling you how to do it. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I'm asking this question. What did Jesus give away? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but even death on a cross, which in that context was humiliating, it was a curse. Let me ask you, what did Jesus give away? Everything. Everything. Even his fenter trailer. It's gone. He gave it away. Now let me ask you, what, did, what was credited to Jesus? What, what was put in the credit column for Jesus as he did that? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, it's an upside down kingdom. The Savior dies, humiliated, beaten, mocked, scorned, strung up in the public view, naked, for all to see him and jeer. If you want to lose your life, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. If you want to lead, you must be a servant. And then we see that God in his credit side takes this, what any human being looking on would say, mess. This shambles of a Messiah. That's not, and that's what, that was, that was what the guys were struggling with. They were saying, this can't be him. This can't be, this can't be the kingdom. This can't be the Messiah. 
And then God highly exalts him. So that one day every single knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to proclaim Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Let's pray together this morning. Father, one of the things I'm enduringly grateful for is that you didn't just tell us, but you showed us. You didn't just tell us to give stuff away and that somehow through magic fairy dust you were going to make us increase. But God, you came and you showed us. You showed us. You showed us so clearly as you gave your life, how many were ransomed. And we sit among the ransomed. We sit among your fruit, Jesus. We are the fruit of that moment and we thank you. We thank you. Lord, I ask at these words that we've spoken in this whole series of Philippians, this morning as well, God, would it change us? I want to ask for those feeling shame and guilt and disillusionment and disappointment. I want to ask, Lord, that you'd come and drill down this encouragement of the fact that we are meant to learn, that we're meant to fail, that we're meant to grow, that we're meant to practice, that we're meant to one day be mature and that you're maturing us. Encourage us, Lord. Lord, those of us in a space of responsibility with what you've given us here on earth, Lord, and that's nearly all of us in this room. Father, I don't want this morning to be a dampener on that. We want to use joyfully our resources for your kingdom, for your purposes. Come and help us do that. Come and help us sift through the tricky motives of our hearts, Lord the really tricky motives and the temptations which face us because of the abundance that we live in. Would you come and do that in us, Jesus? Holy Spirit, we thank you that all of this is only possible because of you living inside of us. We're not some moralistic, behavioristic people that are trying to learn how to do some stuff and and give away stuff in order to receive something. Father, we do it out of deep joy and gratitude for what you've done in our lives. In your wonderful name, we praise and thank you. Amen.